Podcast. We are your hosts. I am Chris Sinclair. And I'm Drew Garrison. Hey, Drew. Hey. I understand you have something for me to drink today. I do have something for you to drink. I can't wait. And here it is. Oh, look at that. That's so pretty. And because this is a non-visual podcast, <laughs> I will describe what it is. This is actually Rum Clamont. A very special edition from Rum Clamont. God, I love that bottle. Yeah. Um, it's got graffiti all over it. And here's the Those thing. You know, no. When you buy this bottle, it actually comes with its own industry expert. Oh, that's so cool. It's like rubbing the genie lamp. It's like the ultimate gift pack. So I'm going to rub the bottle. Here. <laughs> and oh my God, we have Antoine Nixon here. Hi guys, what's up? <laughs> Wow. Really sneaky pick there on the on the bottle. Well, I was so I was thinking to myself, I might have had a, a tip off that you were gonna join us today. Because it was my idea. And <laughs> I was like I was true. like I was like, what can I what can I bring that's gonna pop Antoine, right? Because I have a pretty good collection of the rums that you get to work with. And I was just like, I was like, well, what's gonna get him excited? Like, you've seen some of like my old format bottles and yeah. things like that. And then I was just like, I was like, this is this is a bottle, the VSOP that we, it's not just the normal VSOP either. No, so this is a commemorative bottle that we did with a very very famous graffiti artist in France. His name is John Juan. Uh, so this is like the classic John Juan bottle. Uh, it is a special like pick of the VSOP rum that we normally would blend but it ended up in i think just french barrels maybe uh but it is a beautiful very very well identified graffiti bottle that has some lovely lovely artwork on it um and it's just a bottle that gets me really excited because uh, yeah uh, your face when he pulled that bottle out made me immediately wish this was a visual medium <laughs> and, and usually when i whip things out i don't get that reaction so that was I like really excited that was um anyone that was really positive me. and 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 just so you know you guys know like rum clamont in particular out of all of the really awesome brands that antoine gets to work with is just i even get like emotional talking about it right now because it's just it's so goddamn delicious and I feel like there's other rums in this world that deservedly get a lot of praise. But like for whatever reason, this one doesn't and then there's there's huge fans of it. I'm not saying that, but there's like it just doesn't it doesn't have like that same kind of like popularity that other brands have. Almost. To a certain degree, yeah. It's like it's I think it's, it's, it's kinda I mean, like it's not like the bourbon of the of the rum world where it's just like, oh, we like we you know, all these hype bourbons and stuff like that. It's just but like people who know, like this is the this is well. The, I, I think some of it comes comes with the fact that it's agricole, right? So yeah, uh, agricole, especially people who are used to drinking agricole or unused to drinking agricole, usually the first time they get it is the white rum, and sometimes they get it by itself, and it's so funky and so weird that people are just unused to it, and either you immediately fall in love with it or you yeah. immediately hate it. Yeah. That and then you're turned off, and you're not willing to jump into the aged expressions or the more expensive shit. Um, which is a shame because I feel like if you like if you like bourbon, you like the wood notes on this, and it, it's a very different rum altogether than your white rums. So, and you know, I, and I do I do think that one thing that we have to discuss is like so obviously both Chris and I are very well aware of who you are and what you do and what you bring to this amazing world. But I don't know your life, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But for our listeners out there, who are you? What's your deal? Why did we pick this? Because you're here. You know, what, so you can just give us a little rundown and background. I can dive into the, the, the overall uh, resume. Um, so my job is the portfolio manager for a brand, uh, which is Clement, but also main importantly, we are a management company called Spirit Bomb. So we oversee three distilleries, two in Martinique, which is uh, our, where we house our AOC uh, rums, and then another distillery in St. Lucia, which um, produces a more traditional style rum. Uh, but our kind of ethos and uh, mission in life is not really to, so we have like a reverse marketing scheme. 
So essentially, our company doesn't take profits off the rum that they sell in the U.S. They take every dime that they would possibly make instead of reinvesting that in like market share or like marketing dollars. We reinvest in the islands and the distilleries themselves. Um, so we do a lot of work on Martinique and St. Lucia with like redevelopment of not only the distilleries themselves, but also like the f- things that function around them and all kinds of things. So I mean, that's, that, that's huge. That correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, a couple years ago with the hurricanes, right? One of the one of the hurricanes hit the tip of Martinique, but it did not affect. But I mean, we're in that alley, so it's sort of yeah, like okay. a. Right. It's sort of like a uh, one of those kind of how we feel about the earthquake. Mm-hmm. It's like it's coming. Yeah, the big one's coming. Yeah, so yeah. it's like it, the last hurricane that really hit Martinique that caused a large destruction was in 1912. Um, and that was obviously a very, very long time ago. So it's sort of one of those things. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that really stands out to me with you know the stuff that you guys are doing and these distilleries are doing is something we've discussed before is rum is brutal, brutal work. Um, to produce and one of the things that you guys really pride yourselves on is taking care of those people and making sure that they're not getting into you know shady situations in terms of their overall health and stuff like that because you know again it's you know it's farming and everything like that you're working with sugar cane so you're out in high heat and you know very little shade and so can you talk about some of the things that you guys do just to kind of make sure that you know the people that are working on this stuff you know they're not working in these you know, it's not like third world conditions, like you guys are taking care of them and stuff like that. So, so first and foremost, we are, Martinique is a French state. So under that, we have very, very strict labor laws in, in the EU and in France. So, uh, that is off starters, but for our, for most of the people that work in our, on our farms, um, all the cane is essentially cut through machinery, which most of the tough work of cutting cane and we're doing that that laborious job is when you're cutting by hand. So we've kind of almost fully done away with that. The only time that we really would use uh, manual laborers in the field, which would be if we're cutting on any sort of elevation. And so when we do that, uh, we actually do import employment from other islands like the Dominican Republic and Haiti, but we actually pay them, we have to pay them by law, a European Union wage. So we have to pay them as if they were a citizen. So, regardless, those people get dimed out as if they lived in, you know, in the EU. So, they make their money in five and a half months that they would make a full year. So, they come there, they work for five months, they make their profit, you know, they make their dime and they go home and they relax for the rest of the time. So, that's sort of like a, I don't know, a great position for them. But we can't even like really, because of, you know, the labor and the way that works, it's really hard for us to actually get Martinicans to do that physical labor because it actually they could not they could even just go like technically on whatever welfare system they have there and like be better off in terms of like physical manual labor so it's really hard for us to get that done so that's the reason why we have to bring in other employment we pay them as if they were Mm -hmm. you know citizens citizens so it's it's a it's it's, and it's also like you know we're 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 really on top of all of those conditions like you know we make we over we overpopulate the fields. We don't have people doing too much. They can only work seven hours a day. They can't work 16 hours a day as if they were working on some island that was like, you know, basically not regulating these things. So it's, they still have to follow under the rules and regulations of what we would be doing for any other employee. So, nice. so it's, 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 it's regulated through and through. And that's part of our, that's actually part of the AOC. And one of the things they actually monitor is part of the labor part. Like, where did the cane come from? Did it come from an elevated and place? what is the AOC? The AOC is um, similar to, it is the governing body for all things agriculture in France. Um, so the AOC is sort of like, I don't know, the best way I could describe it is like, like say the health department, you have that, right? So mm-hmm. the health department is one governing body, but you kind of have different departments. Like, so the way like the health department would operate in say Truckee, it's not actually the same way that they're going to operate here because it's sort of like the, the officers determining the law. Yeah. It's kind of a loose way, but essentially like each department kind of oversees each region. So you have like cognac, champagne, um, burgundy wines, um, camembert cheese, like all of these things that are derivative of France. What France likes to do is they will um, basically protect where these things have come from. If it comes from 
France and Parisian like thing is to kind of identify these things and protect them as if like to say that this is the only place a that you can get this but b that is the best that's kind of like the other part of it yeah. so that governing body oversees our entire rum production from the time that from the conditions of our fields of where the cane is coming from to the you know the the bricks levels and the in the you know bacteria levels of the cane when it's coming off the coming from the fields into the into the distillery and then from that point on the fermentation the the, the, the distillate everything um, so really it's sort of regulated from from start to finish um, even to the point of our bottling lines and the cleanliness of our bottling facilities and all the way down the line so it's a very very uh, intensive process um, and so if we for some way or you know if we basically if we mess up any any time along the way we can receive full fine like heavy fines we can lose whole batches of rum we can uh you know we can get docked in many ways that makes it very hard for us in a already strict you know regulated process that can make it very even less profitable so um it, what is i guess what would be your your 30 second pitch like you're you're going into bars and you're taking a product that you know people are familiar with to a certain degree and they, obviously they know rum but maybe they don't understand agricultural rums and stuff like that if you could kind of i know this is really difficult but you know if you can distill this down a little bit for us like kind of what's your what's your pitch for when you're walking into bars kind of cold calling and stuff like that. i mean obviously it depends on who i'm talking to but like the basic baseline of what an agricultural rum producer is trying to make is essentially sugarcane eau de vie so if you've ever had the opportunity to have uh fresh fresh cane juice like say at the state fair or something like that and that that grassy kind of freshy citrusy salty thing that's happening with that mm. the idea is to get that flavor profile and as close as to it possibly can into the bottle nice and that's really like the the raw essence of everything we were trying to do it, it it's sort of insane you know being in the u.s we have a uh, a barrel aged way of thinking our our home spirit is is aged that's mm -hmm. what it is and so it's, it's the complete opposite in martinique the idea is to make this beautiful white clean distillate that taste as refreshing and salty and citrusy and floral as it, the juice does. So that's kind of like the 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 the, the definitely uh, basic difference between like what we know and what we do. And then you know when you get this question of well, what do I do with it? <laughs> uh, I have, <laughs> right <laughs> uh, being someone who had uh, uh, challenges also working with this spirit as a bartender and running bars for the many years of my life that I did. Uh, the, the easiest place to start was with gin cocktails. Interesting. And, uh, and tequila cocktails, but really gin was like a very great avenue to begin the journey of a cocktail development. Interesting. Um, one of my favorite cocktails now, like for like obviously being rum and like kind of heavy in the tiki game, um, I love a Singapore sling. It was one of my favorite cocktails, but it's also like this very like polarizing cocktail that people find very inconsistent because yeah. it is very inconsistent. Because well, uh, no one knows the recipe. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but I love uh, an agricultural version of that cocktail. Okay, so then right now, yes, on the Good Bottle Podcast, we're putting this to rest. What is the actual recipe? For a Singapore sling. Well, uh, no, no, there's no, no there's, actual yes, there recipe. Is. Yes, there is. We're, we're deciding it right now. No, we're not. I, this I, is how, I'm not responsible for this. <laughs> this, is how this is how we're making our impact. We're changing. <laughs> we're changing the game right now. <laughs> Literally changing the game. <laughs> yeah, I will tell you my preference. Okay, let's do that. It's it's uh, four ingredients. Prime, pretty close to being equal parts. Okay, uh, and it's close to like. A, an ounce of each, you tweak them however you like. But yeah. you get the gin, you get the lime, you got your uh, you got your uh, uh, Benedictine yes. and cherry hearing. That's it. No, no juice, no nothing. No. Okay. I mean, yeah. You should see the look of disgust. No, there's no disgust. I'm just uh, or fine confusion. Yeah, I mean, confusion. that's what we did at Rabbit. <laughs> okay. So okay. Okay. We, we so did it right now and hands down one of the best tasting ones I've ever had. Slap it my way. So what do you think? What, you, what is yours? Because uh, we've got four uh, ingredients here. I've definitely got more ingredients. So I've got a little lime, a little pine juice in there. 
but I also have a little orange liqueur, and I've got a little along with the Benedictine cherry herring. So, but but very minimal of those three, them being the sweetening agents, and then obviously the gin at that point and the rest of it. So that's so funny because it's like. Those are different tricks. Yeah, 100%. Entirely, <laughs> even though it's like a quarter ounce or a half yeah, ounce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, if you go down the rabbit hole of, like, looking at what a Singapore sling is, you can find both of those things yeah. as being identifiable. So, polarizing drink, there you go. But I love it with a with an agricole because it's a it's it's just perfect. Now, were you saying agricole? Are you saying aged agricole? No, I'm talking just about white rum. White rum. White rum. White and then, um, j- just because if you talk about the connection of what both things like gin is right it is a clean vodka essentially that's that's got these some sort of angular flavor profile so you usually obviously juniper being either very forward or not but then you will find citrus you'll find cardamom you'll find um lavender rose like all these other things so when it comes to our white rums, uh, typically we have this kind of polarizing, not really polarizing, but like definite, you know, bouquet of flavors you usually have salt or some sort of like umami flavor. You usually have some sort of tropical, either bananas, um, some people find papaya, some people find like uh, all kinds of mangoes. And then you will have this grassy, green, brightness, fresh, uh, vegetal thing that's happening that's going on so it's like all of these things and then it'll obviously vary per producer but like that's kind of like the easiest thing that I can identify especially when it comes to like trying to identify to the American palate and what they are drinking and which is which is my overall mission is trying to connect to those people I would say uh, for the user-friendly um, anecdote uh, if you're if you're using any of these aged I say just Throw it in a Mai Tai, classic Trader Vic's Mai Tai, and it's going to taste so much better than using Bacardi. Not that there's anything wrong with Bacardi, but, you know, it's got its place and, and the complexity that uh, a liquid like this has on a drink like that versus something that's clean, dry, flat. Yeah, I think it's, I, it's very different. I think it's definitely one of those one of those brands that, you know, once you kind of get past that initial hump of figuring out what it is and kind of, you know, what it's all about. I mean, I've, I've turned a lot of people onto this brand that typically wouldn't enjoy rum. And actually, a lot of them end up enjoying just um, the Blanc, which is crazy to me. Great. You know, you'd think that they would gravitate more towards the age stuff. Um, so with all that said, and because you guys aren't an official sponsor yet, we're gonna we're gonna move on. Um, <laughs> but don't worry, I'm, I'm, just... a quasi, I'm quasi sponsoring this. <laughs> yeah, with your presence, there you go. Good bottle podcast. So... Actively seeking sponsorship. <laughs> Shameless plugs, constant. Um, but yeah, so today what we're gonna do is we go through these different stories and stuff like that. I we're gonna put a little bit more of an emphasis on. On on rum, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into it. Oh, and, diving uh, right in! <laughs> that's we're gonna try to only say that one time. So to start off with our first story, um, and you know this is something that's been out for for a bit of bit of time, but I think it's it's important to discuss is uh, um, Trudy and Breaker becomes the first female master blender in the three hundred year history of Mount Gay Distillery. Um, she joins the ranks of Joy Spence at Appleton. Uh, Lorena Vasquez at Ranzacapa. She wants to make her own mark. She wants to really have an impact on the Mount Gay distillery and stuff like that. But it doesn't want to be just because of you know the fact that she's the first female. Like she wants to really put together some really rad, rad rum and um, fun expressions. So you know when you see things like this in our industry and, and rum in general, like what are your, what are some of your guys' thoughts and things like that? I like I like her quote uh, that really stood out to me uh, was I'm not going anywhere until I've made my mark. That's ballsy, yeah, and that's it's kind of dope. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's it, it was kind of a, a really cool thing. And I mean, and again, not trying to, you know, stay on the shoulders of just like strictly. To, oh, just because I'm a female, this is super cool. It's like, it's like no, I'm going to make really amazing rum. And then you know, of course, to talk about some of the other people that you know are involved, like somebody like a Joy Spence who makes really amazing rum as well. I'm going to bring back up something that I've always said, which is in, in no way sort of the opposite end of pandering, which is I don't understand why people are confused by women taking over in the spirits world. 
Their pellets just work better. I was better. just going to get into this. I was just better. It's <laughs> biological. Yeah, I'm jealous of it. Just gonna say that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense when people I mean, are like, oh, it's a woman. Oh, you go to any... They're just pandering. No, they're better at this. Yeah. And that's yeah. irritating. If you go to any... Like, I've, been, I've been lucky enough to go to Kentucky and go to a bunch of distilleries. And I would say, what, nine and a half times out of ten, the person who's tasting for consistency in these big houses... Yeah. are women. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that rum producers are finally getting on board and getting a woman to, de- to help build what they're doing only makes exact sense and it's only going to help develop the, the for the future and complexity. It's just and good business acumen. It's just smart. Yeah. Well, especially like, you know, you, you when you think about Barbados rum, or at least when I think about Barbados rum, um, to me it's about having that like really approachable style, right? That's just like, it's... It, it has these nice layers of complexity, but they really work, work well together. And I think it appeals to a lot of different palettes. So like having someone that you can really kind of dial in on that and be able to just kind of be like, yeah, we're going with this, we're going with this, we're going with this. I mean, this is a really, really important job, especially for you know a distillery that's one of the older ones. It is, you know? the, it is the old Or one. the oldest one. It's the longest, yeah. ru- longest, longest continuously running. Longest continuously running. You know, so, still in, in the Americas. So it's really, you know, it's really cool to, you know, to see that stuff. And, and, I, and I, I hope that we get to a point, like, with a lot of things as we, as we continue to progress, where, like, it's just not a big deal that it's a female. Well, I mean, if you, it. like, I mean, and just from your, just to kind of piggy, pig and drop up your business, like, standpoint, if you look at numbers and who drinks cocktails, women drink way more cocktails than men do by far. It's like almost over 50%. So if a woman is also making your spirit, it almost makes sense because you're connecting to your base, like the end result, right? The end result is for this person to drink. Not even from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, just from a just from creation a creation standpoint. Creation standpoint, yeah. you're immediately connecting from start to finish from, mm-hmm. you know. It is amazing, like kind of the perception. I had this conversation with a marketing person probably about two weeks ago, and um, they were developing a whiskey. And their whole thought process was like, this is the whiskey for women. And I was just like, are you joking? <laughs> I was like, what are you was talking about? Like, no, Jane Walker. Like, or was it uh, uh, Sia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the Sia. Uh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was. I'm, we're, I'm trying to be a positive person. I'm, I know. <laughs> I, I, I can see you straining. Yeah. I can yeah. see a vein popping. But it, just, it was just really interesting to have this conversation with somebody who was so it's very far removed from the from the industry right so there is that point of like i kind of understand but you you would think there's just like like this information is available like you can find out it's like there's this thought process of like like oh like women are only drinking like rose and wine and stuff i mean i saw a dog i'm drinking rose yeah i was like love drinking rose well it's like i saw i saw I mean, I, I saw a bar recently that's doing like a ladies' night, and it's all just like stereotypical things. It's just kind of like, what, what are we doing here? Like, I, I don't. I mean, obviously, it's going to take a long time. To change I mean, that consumer still exists, and that's fine. But there, but again, it's just kind of. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying that like Stop. every single one was just kind of like you know whiskey shots or anything like that. But just like that mindset that we have to, you know, they have to be treated like with these you know white gloves and stuff like that. It's just it's so ridiculous, and you know, I love seeing that. And, and then you know, whiskey advocates top twenty list just came out. And, you know, believe what you want to believe about those lists, but George Nichols' Bottle and Bond was the number one whiskey. They're thir- and their last... They're 13 year. What? They're George Dickel, 13 year. Was the Bottle and Bond. Bottle and Bond. Yeah. yeah. And their mm-hmm. last two distillers, their current one, females. Right. And they actually took a really, they took a really cool picture at like this whiskey event out in New York with them, like the current, the former one and the current one. It was just awesome. It was just kind of like, look at that, you know? Out there crushing it, so yeah. And so, so, so it's, it's not even it's about cool. pandering. Again, yeah. it's it, it's just doing the work and not even for recognition, just doing the work and doing it well, and finally getting some sort of equanimity, equanimity within the industry. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's it's in the like. Just go drink it. I mean, like the Appleton Joy, one of my all time favorite so, rums. So good. So and good. it's just beautiful packaging, beautiful mm-hmm. products. I mean, it's just I. Mean, I I've had a couple of them, and when they get opened up, they don't last the night. Like, the, that that bottle is gone. Well, I'm going to say that about this bottle that you brought out. 
you're a dummy because I'm drinking this whole thing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a good day. <laughs> that's that's. I okay. just have a few orders. I gotta I gotta put. I gotta put subs up in the. Well, you know what's okay. what's what's so funny about this bottle in particular is that I saw this bottle in a bar uh, three years ago, maybe like when it first came out, and um, I actually hit up Antoine. It's like, can you give me one of these bottles? Of course, he said yes because he's my friend. But also because he's my friend, he didn't get it for me. I didn't hold it against him, but I eventually found it. In this. You know what's really funny about that? I have that exact same Antoine story, yeah. which yeah, is Antoine, I'm done drinking my uh, my JMVSOP at home. I need more. Yeah. It took him at least a year to get me another one. At least you got one. Motherfucker. Yeah, I'm bad. Give me more free <laughs> shit. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but for you... Yeah. <laughs> But fortunately, I, I found it in this in this liquor store, and I, I think the first time I saw it, I sent him a picture of it, and I was like, I was like, hey, look, this is here. He's like, yeah, it's super awesome, and you know, he didn't get the hint, so I was like, all right, I bought the bottle. <laughs> well, so I'm maybe, gonna ask you off air what liquor store because I'm gonna go try to find more shit like this. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm, it's gonna be very hard. It's to find so hard to find this. This is. When was this produced? When did this come out? This came out. I so, I feel like four years ago. So years I've ago? been with the company now. This is I'm in my fourth year, and I was not. I don't think I was with the company yet when it was released, and so we, I think it's about six years old. So when we released it, we thought because of the what we felt was a super sexy rad bottle that people were just going to be like, "This is the sh- this is awesome, right?" Mm-hmm. Well. This was also we released this rum. This was also the time where every person like wanted to have the, the bar to look like Rick House. Mm. So, which is a very popular whiskey bar a, in San Francisco. It's a very popular whiskey bar. But if you've ever happened to be there, it's very browns, blacks, very browns, yeah. very blacks, very like dark wood, Edison yeah. lights, turn everything down. So people were very turned off by the bottle. Yeah. And we were sort of shocked. But now, if you look at, like, the way color screens and bars are going, like, we were just way too early. Because people would totally be into this in yeah. 2019. But yeah. And, and again, like, just to describe it, you know, looking at this color palette, orange, yellow, pink, purple, green. I mean, there's just, I mean, it's graffiti on a ball. It's graffiti yeah. on a ball. And, it's, and there's also this. Which I love because I've got a history in doing that growing up. Me too. Only, <laughs> only legally though, on paper, in pads, you know, one yeah, class, one hundred percent illegal. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. There's probably a warrant. For yes, <laughs> I also doodle. I also child. drink responsibly <laughs> all the time. Every time. Every time sorry. I drink is always responsible. <sighs> okay, so on to, on to our next one. You're not gonna get me. Uh, wait, shout out to our uh, female distiller at Jam Kareen. Just. I'll throw that there, there it is. There's another one. A little, little, little drop from my people. There you go. Cream, you're welcome. Now, <laughs> give us a review. Um, and more bottles. Five stars. <laughs> uh, so, next story. This is a, this is about a distillery out in Oahu, which I know all of us have been to and are big fans. And again, another agricole rum. Uh, Kohana Rum is releasing their first ever Koa Barrel aged rum. It's uh, koa is a type of wood that's found in Hawaii, and um, there's like all kinds of like jewelers out there that work with it. It's really, really sexy. Tradi- traditionally made um, uh, surfboards, uh, dugout boats uh, from the islands. So very, very tied to mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the history of Hawaii. So yeah. they, you know, they took their agricole rum, threw it in a barrel, stayed there for uh, two years, you know, popped it out. There's a total of 437 bottles produced. Only available at the distillery. Yeah. Good news, guys. I'll be there the second week of January, so I can pick us all up. I some already bottles. texted Dave Newman. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm already texting Dave Newman right now, <laughs> saying, "Brother, get me some." So I, I think what you know, what's cool about this, and um, in and for people who are familiar with Kohana, it is a little bit confusing because they do have a a koa. Expression. Yeah, you and I were talking about this yeah, last night. I sent and, you a picture of mine. Right, and I had that one as well. I think actually we drank it together. Yeah. Um, but that was actually aged in bourbon barrels. They just called it koa. So this one is officially in um, in that type of wood. So with that being said, you know, and you, you know, we're starting to see this more and more and more across all kinds of like different woods being used, whether it's kasasha, rum, you know, 
different finishes and stuff like that. Is there is there anything that anybody in the spirit bomb portfolio is doing kind of weird wood wise right now or are just like unconventional? I should say weird. Like uh, I think weird's fine, but weird's also fine. unconventional Un- is unconventional is also accurate. More, I would say more professional. Uh, well, I'm working on it. <laughs> um, I uh, we have always done at Clement Jam. Um, so age rum where we produce it uh we're we do very very well in uh in europe in the eu um in asia with these other deeper expressions so we finish things in all kinds of varying wood i mean you cognac barrels cherry barrels what you name it we we've we've aged rum i mean we've been making rum for 100 years so so we sell these things already currently in in europe and in in asia um Given that we are just where we physically are in the American rum, mar- uh, rum market when it comes to like the the desire for these kind of weird, rare barreled rums, uh, we just are at a place where it's just starting to get a little bit of attention, uh, and people are starting to look for more interesting, deeper, rarer rums. Um, people like, and I would say Barbados was like a very good driving force behind. Some of that, like if you talk about Seal and his his four square releases, yeah, yeah Richard Seal, uh, that kind of has helped people start digging in deeper when it comes to like the complexities and like for rum. So, so we've always done that, and um, and then at our other uh, St. Lucia Distillery, uh, over the next two years, we're going to be releasing some amazing, amazing rum coming from that place. What do you think? Uh, uh, what's sold the best, let's say, in, in the Asian market uh, in terms of um, one-off marks or unique marks that, that maybe we haven't seen here in the U.S.? I, I mean, we've done a bunch of, like, heavier charred, you know, very long-age stuff when it comes to, like, American oak. We've done, uh, you know, stuff that's been finished in, like, cross between French and bourbon that's one-offs that we, we sell the, the amount of like rare and interesting stuff we sell in Europe is but sort. we're not talking like zero wood we're not talking we're not talking some zero wood like yeah that's more like cocktail friendly stuff yeah. but like when it comes like on the subject that we're at of like the age stuff like right. it's it, it's for me someone who really just uh, uh, loves rum uh, I'm very jealous of the uh, opportunities that the French team on our team gets to sure gets to put out uh, they put out a, a litany of things that we just won't see a lot of it is too because you know we're talking about they it's where we make our rum it's a french state we don't have to pay import so right. it's like it makes more sense for us to flood that market with rum that we can make a lot of money off real quick so it's much harder because it's an imported product and like the taxes and like market share and all these other things just play, play a huge factor so you got so i got two two things we got to talk about we were talking about importing and taxes so we're going to touch on that again um I, I would like to say, though, that um, koa is a type of acacia wood. We talked about this also when we were discussing this story. Um, acacia wood, is it's not totally unique. It, there, is, there is a precedent for it. It's been found in wine, um, specifically here in California. Dry Creek uh, uses it in their Sauve Blanc, and uh, Chateau Montalena also uses it in their Sauve Blanc, uh, supposedly adds um, a little bit more florality, uh, more texture, uh, as opposed to, you know, the uh, American oak or French oak, uh, which tends to be a little bit more buttery, right? So you get more of those vanilla notes. As well, the, the cost of a barrel um, fits a little bit closer to, to the French oak side, Ranges between, I guess, eight eight hundred and eight hundred fifty bucks for for a barrel versus four four thirty for American oak and nine hundred to fuck all with with uh, cognac barrels and French cherry oak. barrels and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so uh, just for a little, uh, you know, context. Well, I think that like so one of the things I pulled up was I mentioned like the Novo Fogo. You know, they do a zebra wood age expression. They do a Brazil nut wood mm-hmm. um, age expression in addition to an American oak and then a Brazilian teak. And I think you know again bringing it back to Kohana, 
And, you know, this little rad distillery out in Hawaii. That I love that distillery that we, so much. I love those guys. They it's, are amazing. Yeah. yeah. So if you're like, in... I, I, think, I, think, I, I think it was on our trial episode when we did the yeah. Kohana stuff. So we I like to, to say I've been drinking it since it wasn't good. That's good. <laughs> it's, I agree. <laughs> it's, All right, Kyle. it's fucking great. It's, 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 it's so good amazing. now. And um, one thing that we had mentioned in one of our, you know, quote-unquote practice episodes when we were drinking it was um, it's... Like right down the street from the Dole Pineapple Plantation, so you can really make like the most amazing day out of it. You go to the distillery and then you go to Dole after. They're, they're pretty much across the street from each other. Yeah, yeah. it's it's the best. But um, what I wanted to bring up about like the Koa wood and stuff like that is this talk about terroir when it comes to aging, and specifically in this situation, you know, I know we're talking about like the acacia stuff with some of the things here in California, but you know, in Hawaii, having this this wood that's available to them to then use it like it's very much so a part of the terroir and for the people who are not familiar with what terroir is it's you know the place that it comes from and like some of those environmental factors that are going to affect it and so i think it's i think it's really cool that not only like you know, obviously they're using sugarcane from hawaii so yep. that's as terroir driven as it's going to be but now to kind of double down on that and be like not only are we doing that we're taking i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you it's not just sugarcane from hawaii it's they are specifically finding heritage varietals of sugarcane which is even more rare because most sugarcane you know has some strange number attached to it you know Bridal XB one oh seven. I don't know if that's actually one. I just literally just pulled it, that out it, of my it's ass. It's typically but. like for how we code them. Uh, it's usually like the base varietal, so it's usually like the first. Like if it's a red cane, it's R, and then it'll be R blah 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 one hundred sixty. Like yeah, yeah, so that's how that's how they're all the time. Yeah, but most they, of your cane only comes from like three different places, like right. three different like beginning stocks, and then it's been over time and travel and crossbred and that's like well it's what, a pretty invasive plant like you put sugar cane anywhere where it can like thrive and it can take over it's because yeah it's just it's going to be everywhere yeah. so um but yeah i think that's i think it's just a, a cool thing to kind of bring to this consideration and stuff and you know of course when i go out there in a couple months i'll if they still have some they also have some wait just just, just just, I'll, I'll slide you uh, mm-hmm. my guy's number. Of a, of a DM. Listen, I have some connections there too. Right? <laughs> okay, you can flex on me in a but lot of different ways. Just to, to to draw back <laughs> to draw back to your other point of like the the beauty of what they're trying to do, which is yeah. capture really fully capture the place and where these things are created. Yeah, I think that that is um, it's 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 a beautiful mission that they've had since the beginning. And that draws from their desire to find heritage canes. Like, so I, I would imagine that the cane that they use to put into that is a very specific varietal cane that would taste not so good on its own. Because I know how much work they've done when, when it comes to production. I would bet you the rum that they have in that barrel when it was white wasn't as good as what they're putting out as their whites, their their clear rums. Yeah, right. So okay. it's very, very specific to aging, not only aging, but aging in that wood. And that's how much work they're doing because when production. Because when you guys were talking about heritage, just to kind of boil it down, because I think we got a little too into the weeds with it, is that it's like... Like this is this is sugarcane from this place. Correct. It's not from somebody somewhere else. No. Like this is from Hawaii, so that's why this terroir is at play. That's why this is this is in your theory. This is what why it's going to work better together mm-hmm. is because of those things. Yeah, which is awesome. So yeah. So again, you guys go if you find yourself in Oahu. First off, congratulations. Um, <laughs> second, uh, go there and check out the Kohana. And go to Hawaii more, man. Visit those guys. Yeah, at least like if you're visit, in California, it's yeah. not terribly expensive. It's not terribly expensive. The, it, it, the community of bartenders there are amazing. It's incredible. They, they, they want to host you. They want to take you. They want to show you. They want to take you up to the north. They want to, like, like if you want to go on these, like, bar fun excursions, just go without a plan. Show up to Hawaii. Get ready one to person, eat and drink. Get ready to eat and drink the best you've ever had. It's it's yeah. a great place. It's to one of my favorite yeah. places to eat and drink in the yeah, world. Absolutely. They, they, yeah, absolutely. There's so many like those are those hidden gems, and they're always willing to help out. And I again, part of my trip going out there, I reached out to one of our friends, and I was just like, I was like, hey man, you know, I've been doing all these mezcal trainings and stuff like that. I know it's really picking up in Hawaii. Would you be interested in me possibly coming in and talking about it more? Because I have a lot of experience. He goes. 
Hell yeah, let's do it. So also, know. where was that? What's that? Where was that? No, no, it's going to happen. No, no, I know, but what bar? What what space? We haven't just we haven't decided. So we've been talking with Daniel uh, Bruce out there. Oh, okay. And yeah, so he's great. like, so we we actually we locked down the time and the place. They also have an event in Maui that same week. So like, which is really kind of fun to think about, like the bartenders just hopping on planes to go check out other things. They do like, that, which is super rad. Yeah, yeah. and um, well, you don't think about that. No, uh, I'm saying they they, they absolutely yeah. do that. Yeah. So we're so we're working on like they'll have their event in Maui that week, but they'll also have their event in Oahu. So we're trying to figure out the location. But it's just really cool to see them like like yeah, dude, come in and You're talk about. Probably it. end up at Encore. <laughs> I, yeah. Wherever I end up, I'll be happy. Uh, there's a place called Skull and Crown that you should definitely, uh, this is for everyone, check out. <laughs> uh, it is a tiki bar, tiki bar in very high quotations, um, uh, more a tropical theme, but it's uh, built, it is a, owned by some people who uh, used to build sets in LA and Ugh, they built the dope. entire bar out and it is so well done. I was still blown away by it. it it's, it's, they did a Fantastic job. We'll get into oh. the tropical versus tiki thing at some point in time. I'm dragging Drew into this conversation, kicking and screaming. I don't want to do it. But do it's it. gonna it's gonna happen. <laughs> it's gonna I happen. am not afraid of that conversation yeah. because okay. I have so many people on both sides of the fence. So yeah. well and that's I mean and I constantly find myself on both like it just depends on who you're talking to the day. All right, next story. It was a really interesting one. So um, the Guinness World Book of Records just rewarded a man for having the most expensive whiskey collection in the world. Uh, it's a Vietnamese businessman by the name of uh, Viet Nguyen Dina Tua. Probably butchered that, but that's how it read to me. Um, his collection right now is valued, like when you incorporate fees and stuff like that through uh, like Sotheby's or whatever. Uh, it's $16.7 million worth of whiskey. Uh, to give you an idea of the things that he has, um, he has the Macallan 1926 release. Now, for you auction whiskey fans, that was the bottle that sold, what was it, two months ago, three yeah. months ago, yeah. for a world record $1.9 million. He's the one who bought it? No. No, he is not. He has three of them. <laughs> Holy so, shit. Yeah. So he's got three of them. Um, he also has 12 bottles of the oldest Bowmore that was ever made. And then he has one of the 24 bottles in existence of the 1919 Springbank. So, to give you an idea, he has in his collection right around like 535 bottles. What's now? We have friends that's incredible that have, that have more bottles than that, right? Which I think I have more bottles than that. It's definitely not worth that amount of money. <laughs> But so those Luxardo bottles, free Luxardo bottles, yay. don't really count for much. <laughs> yeah. So it's I got bowls um, yogurt for days, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Like the um, when asked, you know, about his collection and stuff, he's like, you know, it's really kind of cool that you know I've been doing this for twenty years. He's been collecting these whiskey bottles and stuff. And, and and definitely, if you were doing, if you were collecting, if you're, but if you were collecting whiskey twenty years ago, it was it was a lot more approachable than it is now. You know, um, especially when you start getting to these rare things. Whiskey with this really weird stuff that people most Absolutely. of are unaware of. And, um, but I, I, I can't help but just to kind of be that person that's just kind of like, fucking drink it, man. Like, like, like you just like, because to me, it's like, you have this really cool whiskey collection, but like, at a certain, like, I can almost argue that you have the world's most expensive paperweight collection. But you, you can know? say that about like car collections at the same time. Like, there's people who collect cars in the same manner. Yeah, that don't drive particular pieces. I mean, at that point, you're buying art. I would think like you're buying a, a a mantle piece. I guess that's true. That's a fun way to look at it. I also refuse to believe that someone who's got that obviously that bank account and that collection doesn't have dope shit that he's drinking. He is drinking some amazing things. It just doesn't happen to be one of those bottles from the 1920s. I mean, he's, but you have three. He's popping the night. But you have three, <laughs> which means that probably one of them is meant for drinking. Or I guess it, the so. way I collect is I buy. I try to buy at least two or more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One to resell to pay for both of the bottles theoretically. Totally. So that way I can drink one. So well, I think way it's, I'm it, drinking dope shit for free. It's the Steve Beal mentality. It was you buy three bottles. The Steve Beal is a whiskey legend for people who don't know. Really awesome. Really awesome person. You buy one to keep, mm -hmm. you buy one to think about drinking, and you buy one to drink. 
And so that's his, that was his three three whiskey method uh, when it came to collectible bottles and stuff. And it's just, I mean, and I, I use this completely ridiculous analogy a lot where I'm just kind of like, I just don't want, you know, to be walking across the street, get hit by a bus, think about my wife, think about my kid, and think about that whiskey I didn't drink. <laughs> like, ah, the last thing I had was an orange soda. Like, ah, you know, or just some... Was it Orange Crush? Well, you know, that's maybe, fair, then. maybe that's a big difference. Right there. I, I mean, I love to see stuff like this because I think what it does for the industry as a whole is that it really does show people how valuable this stuff can be. On the flip side, though, it also creates these hunters and these guys are just like trying to buy these bottles and sell them on secondary. Now this guy's collection is far beyond beyond any of what these dudes are doing for the most part. It's but so, it, so it impressive overall. So impressive that Guinness Guinness World Records decided to right. approach him and, and or he, like someone at Guinness was like a whiskey fan. It was like yeah. I need to be friends with this person, yeah. and this is my end. Fair. Yeah. Guinness is just trying to put some legitimacy back into their name because they've been doing some questions. We know that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But I mean, I don't know. Like, what, when it comes to these collectible like whiskeys and stuff like that, like, what are your guys' what are your guys' thoughts? I mean, and then also, you know, when you have these really expensive whiskeys, is this something that can translate just to like the normal bartender's life? Can you have things like this in a bar and have them sell? Yes. Yes. The short short answer is yes. Okay. The, the, yes. But for, I think the first thing I ever think about when I hear about stuff like this is like, can it? Is it still good? Mm-hmm. Or like, was it ever good? To or begin was with? it ever good to begin with? Or is it just like again? Is it just a number? Now I don't know. I've never had this this particular these either of these anyways. Right. But like I, that's the first thing I think is how, how after so much time like bottle shock, all these things. You know, was it kept properly? Like yeah. obviously, I don't know any of these answers because I've never seen the bottles. But like, is it good? So like, is the purpose of it just a lure, or is it like people know that it's so amazing, and then over time it's just gathered this? Thing. Well, I, th- I think a it starts with uh, a distillery of repute. Yeah, right? yeah. Like like there's there is definitely a name to be had from Bowmore, right? Or McAllen, or McAllen specifically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's definitely. It it means something coming from there, right? Absolutely. So at the very least, your base juice has that. The journey it takes is, I guess, part of the allure, you know, in yeah. buying a vintage bottle like that. But juice changes in a bottle. Absolutely. We all know that. 100%. Right? right? I don't care what... Yes, it's not that it's now a hundred and something years old but which it's is, also which is always my favorite but it also kind of is i love seeing that when someone's like well it's a 15 but i've had it for four years so it's really a 19 now <laughs> no like, i love that. there's like there's a strong asterisk <laughs> on the end of that right like, right there's there's no way the juice tastes the same from the day it got put into that bottle i don't care there's, it's, it's not physically the light that hits it there's chemical reactions that happen inside the bottle glass itself isn't hermetically sealed right like no. there's there's enough that can happen to the juice that's inside of it so part of it's the story part of it is that is that time in glass i i have i have juice here uh, i have an old fleischmann's from 1940s there's no way it tastes it tasted as good then as it does now. It's delicious now. I drink the hell out of it. It is a blended American whiskey. Who cares about blended American whiskey? Not many people. No. But you know what? That stuff is delicious now. Yeah. It's. I don't think bottle shocks is much of a thing, but I definitely think temperature control, cork, whether it's a leaded cap, all those sorts of things will definitely come into play. And maybe that's why they haven't opened. I agree with you as a buying a piece of art, something that you appreciate that you have to have. This is obviously something that has like driven this guy. Oh, 100%. You know, 20 years, 20 years is a strong obsession to have, you know, and something getting in that into that passion mode of just like I'm going to get these things for whatever reason. It would be interesting to know like what does he drink? Cuz like wouldn't it be right. hilarious? It was just kind of like well, I just, I, you know, it's it's Vietnam, so you're just like, well, I just drink baiju. Yeah, all the time. It's like, I mean, maybe it's like, you know, Ma- no, yeah, I just, just like Coors Light. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, 
actually. I love that. He's all right next to the six the sixteen million dollar collection. I have a fireball machine. <laughs> it's like where's super, the super, peanut butter? Hey, hey, super messy, but it keeps it chill. So I like it. You just you just you just don't know. And I and, I, and you know and obviously this is I mean, it's this, like this chefs, is something that right? we'll never be able to. Oh, do I just the, they just eat whatever? Yeah, like, you just like, like when you work in kitchens, you like when you get off work, you'll eat the most terrible food because it's just there. Well, we talked about this so yesterday like, with bartenders. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like, like, what do bartenders want to drink outside of like the work parameters? And I think we just said like rose. Just give them rose. Just give them rose. Give them rose. Whatever the cheapest shot is. Yeah, try to get a shot of whiskey. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually kind of important because this guy is obviously an extreme example. But I think a ton of the collectors who get who get brought in by the romanticism of alcohol are not professionals. You know, I mean, right. I mean, right. I have a collection. You have a collection. Antoine's got a collection um, of what I like to call no touchy bottles, right? There are things that like, they're just, these are the things that we love to have and we'll do however we see fit in the future. But the things that we drink are really approachable, right? And that that's the same with cooks. It's the same with bartenders, servers. Yeah. We, we tend to gravitate to the things that we know are good, that are of value, you know, that we're not spending an arm and a leg for. And we tend to poo-poo things that people hunt for. For, for your term, Drew. Very, right? very much so. I mean, yeah. I think it's because it's just when you when you start to talk about, um, like, these hype whiskeys and stuff like that. And some of it's not their fault. I mean, in fact, most of the time, it's not these producers' faults or anything like that. Like, they get put on a list. Someone builds them up. And then they create these impossible standards for these whiskeys to reach, you know, where it's just kind of like... In any other sense, like if someone that wasn't popular didn't call this the best whiskey in the world, if it just could have got to just to continue to exist, people are like, that's a really good whiskey. Now, what that whiskey ends up becoming is, oh, dude, it's totally overrated. You know, because it gets or, put in this or category. On the, or the other end, it's, okay. a, it's a religious experience, right? Like you have the Pappy Van Winkle. Uh, who was it who was making jello shots out of their Pappy It was allocation? a bar in like Indiana that they got denied. <laughs> Like the following year because of it, but good for them. Totally, I, I know, I know this person. What I, was I, it? Josh might have been at, at Thunder, Thunderbird. I might have been. It might have been him. I haven't talked. I mean, I haven't talked to Josh. I haven't talked to Josh in a minute. Um, I love that motherfucker, but he's great. Uh, it seems like a thing he would do. Yeah. Regardless, they made Jello shots out of Pappy Van Winkle. This is an allocation. You have to buy so many cases of Fireball and other shit and just to be able to get one bottle and it's so ridiculous it's so ridiculous the amount of effort it takes and japanese okay. whiskey is very much so on that on that train now and pappy van winkle is delicious whiskey but you know what it's whiskey it's it doesn't taste like not whiskey, whiskey. Yeah. it's still whiskey it's, it's delicious whiskey it's so just so we can as the as the co-producer of the show and googler <laughs> It's uh, there's a there's a lot of articles on this. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's Jeremy Johnson, who's the owner of the Louisville mm. Bar Meta. It was Jeremy. <laughs> and, I didn't even know it was him. And so here's a picture of, of the gentleman. Of course, of course, he would do that. That's lovely. That's um, now in the article, it does cite him as a quirky guy. <laughs> I was a he was a roommate of mine at Camp Runamuck. I know Jeremy fairly well. And Kooky would be a very strong uh, identity, like a strong characteristic for my man. Yeah, so he was. So Shout out to Jeremy were, Johnson. Yeah, they were actually. Um, Can we get a round of applause? Were, Let's get a round of applause. <laughs> they were Which, denied an allocation, but. Uh, and, I'm, and again, I'm skimming this right now, so I'm skipping a lot of details. But. Uh, but. I, I, I am catching. Uh, I think the fact this, that this, this, is, this is a quote from him in this article. This is, this is a Vice article. Where Jeremy goes on to say, um, "This is bourbon, people. It's supposed to be fun, man." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which makes it even better, Amen. Amen. because yeah. uh, Jeremy, being a very polarizing person, and also obviously in the backyard of where all is produced, just that much more raises the middle finger up even higher, even higher, because he but, knows every single person. Because Kentucky, like they all, they all know each other. All of them. The 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 on premise people know every single person at each distillery. They're all they all been in the same room. 
it's, it's very similar to any community that we have in any other city. So everybody knows everybody. So the fact that he did that raises the middle finger even higher. Well, let's take that one step further, right? The, the reaction from the consuming public. He received death threats for that. Oh, yeah. Death threats for whiskey. Come on, guys. But that's that like religious fervor that people have for some of this stuff. I, and that's, you know, uh, yes, drink it. Just drink it. Some of it. Right? But we're on that far end of things when you're collecting works of art, shit to put on your mantle, right? Like, this is, this is something that I'm proud that I have achieved this. I get it. You know, you, at very least, you know, I don't know, your dog dies, then you drink it, you know? Like, when something matters to you and you're waiting for that perfect moment, I get it. Yeah. Sometimes, I guess, you don't you don't wait for that perfect moment. And I think we as industry professionals want to have that moment where we look for something in order to... We look for a moment that needs accentuation. We need that cherry on top of our... I don't know. A great example, I climbed... Um, um, Machu Picchu with my brother uh, a bunch of years ago and I drank uh, Pisco at the top of you know the Sun Gate in Machu Picchu and it is one of the best experiences of my life and it wouldn't have been as good had I not had that Pisco there um, it would have been cool I, I don't know like watching the sunrise over Machu Picchu drinking Pisco with my brother brought tears to my eyes. It was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, and spirits, you know? spirits can definitely usher that in, you know, for you and, like, feel, feel a part of it. So, I think, can, I think that's just part of the, the, the one of the other points we're making. That's sort of part of the terroir, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Identifying the place. That's, and that's really kind of what, when you talk about heritage, heritage spirits, things like that. I mean, that's that's the key. That is the, the whole entire point, yeah. if you will. Like, that's, that's it. Like, you... Finding the balance between the climb, the end, and the reward yeah. in the moment and seeing it all, like that's 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 exactly the point. Well, and I think that's it, it's about in, in bringing it back to kind of like the, the industry side of it and like the things that the ways that you can cultivate these experiences for people, like when they come in. So it's like that bottle service effect. Like maybe you don't have the sparklers, but the presentation is really beautiful on it. And it's like when someone comes to your bar and you have this really beautiful expression that you can then pour for them and give them this really unique experience. And you know, can and even if it's not like completely like totally sexy and stuff like that, like a really cool bottle could be a cool, fun thing. Like for me, that Appleton Joy bottle that I was talking about earlier, when we drank it, like we drank it, like I drank it with a couple of my buddies that I grew up with. We hadn't been together in a very long time. All of us collectively together, you know, probably over five years or something like that. But we all have known each other since we were at least, you know, eight or eight or ten, something like that. And do these guys know anything about rum? Hell no. Do they know? But they know that I know about booze. So they come over to my house and I do like theme nights for them. And that's what we did. We blew through a whole bottle of Apple to Joy, and it's one of my favorite drinking experiences, which just being in my backyard and not, you know. And not like having this super romantic thing. Like I was like, oh, I'm gonna save it for Christmas. Like oh, I'll save it for Thanksgiving. And then it just it didn't feel right. Didn't feel right. Didn't feel right. And I was like, I have some of my oldest friends here. Let's open the Appleton Joy. Yeah. Right. And then we just crushed it. <laughs> and it <was> just, <laughs> that's great. And it was just gone. That's great. Yeah, it was great. It was you know, fun. When you get to sh- when you get to share an experience uh, of multi levels like that, you know. Yeah. Both either it's culinary. Whether it's, you know, you're imbibing something. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's never about the booze, but booze, for whatever, you know, I don't know. It's social lubricant, but it, it also accentuates, you know, our experiences. Yeah, it's, an, it's intoxicating. But you, if you do it, we'll say in the right way, you know, it creates, it creates an experience all its own that it... It wouldn't be otherwise. Obviously, it can get out of the hand. Obviously, you have to be careful with it in your life. And you have to be an adult about it. And I don't know. But when you when you add these flavors, it, it all of a sudden it becomes something that is you can't ever recreate. It's it's a, an emotion. It's an experience that is just so saturated with with joy and and connectivity. Well, and again, it's like and having like unique offerings, even like this Clamato. Like, once this bottle is gone that I brought today, you know, 
I don't know if I'll be able to find it again. Yeah, I don't. And know. I have two, like you know, Speaking the, the memory, a memory of this. <laughs> you I know, just, I got to pour myself a little. And, and being able to enjoy this with Antoine and you know, and, and Chris here, but then also like this is a bottle that I poured um, in different, like very special trainings for people. Um, so I don't really pour it that often. And now we're probably going to kill it today, so it's going to be gone forever. Sorry, but um, sorry, but it's it's you know it's really great. And okay, so we, so now we we are getting a little long here. Um, we're going to wrap up and hopefully do this this quick one. And this is something that we've actually kind of already touched on a few times. But um, Europe gets cooler shit than we do when it comes to alcohol. A lot of cooler stuff, and the reason being is because the uh, TTB, which is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau regulates the size of the bottles that that the united states can bring in so they can approve 50 ml 200 ml 375 ml 750s 1 liters 1.75s they do not allow 700 milliliters which everyone else in the world does universal and it's just kind of like the most infuriating thing so what ends up happening to the u.s market is that we don't get a lot of expressions because it's not cost effective for a lot of these different distilleries from around the world to do a 700 and a 750, so we don't get it. Now, what's happening... It's not just cost-effective. It's, I mean, it's cost-effective to the nth degree. It's, it, would, it would be a huge shift in economic cost for them. It's not like, oh, it's a slight inconvenience. It might, trying to meet those standards would, would shut them down. Right. I mean, I would think one about, thing to like really, really harp on, and I don't think a lot of people understand this when it comes to uh, the re... getting the actual alcohol into your possession, whether it be on-premise, off-premise, whatever you do, is most of the thing you're paying for is the actual glass. Right. And I don't think people actually understand that a lot of times. It's like the the glass is the thing that probably costs more than almost any other part of the production process sometimes, depending on the glass, like depending. So like that's the thing. If I'm already buying glass at bulk on these 700 mLs, I'm going to then buy a whole other thing of bulk for this other thing when I'm already distributing around the world. There's one thing that it's cost deterrent as you're getting to. But I think that's one thing that a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of people don't really. I mean, I could say that as a buyer, when I was buying alcohol, it's one thing that I I definitely was not as aware of as I am today as someone who's worked for a supplier for a long time. Sure. So it's something that I think people really should, like when we're talking about this particular subject, why and I think that's a big why. Yeah. It's like glassware. It's huge, 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 huge. So TTB, I suppose to their credit, offered this up as a as a um, community effort. You know, they, they they wanted input. Unfortunately the people who have mostly responded to them have been the big guys in American spirit production who all suggest that it would it would be tough for them to meet these standards of also having to produce 700s i can i can a little bit see both sides of this conversation but it's hard to uh it's it's hard to find the balance between heaven hill and Bacardi complaining about hitting 700 mLs, which they probably already do internationally. Yeah, you know, and hitting those skews versus getting some dope rum or dope spirit out of the Middle East uh, that's no one's ever tasted before that probably won't sell nearly as much, right? Uh, to m- meet those same standards. I think I think for me in this in this scenario because and I I read all of the approved sizes for a reason. It's like there's a lot of approved sizes, you know. So to me, it's like, and I understand that mindset of kind of being like, you know, if somebody like Heaven Hills, like they're not going to have the as hard of a transition into going to like a 700 milliliter, right? They can make it happen. They're already doing it for the more, more than likely. Someone who's a smaller producer, like let's say like Ed up at Darjeeling Gin in Auburn, who's got a full palette of 750 milliliter bottles. Now those are irrelevant. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal, right? Yeah. With that being said, then it's like, okay, let's just add 
700 to this robust list of approved sizes. And that's, that's where I get caught up as well, Drew. I, I am confused by the argument that all of a sudden these companies are going to need to create 700s. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I can. If you wanted to suggest that there would be consumer confusion for the first year, okay, maybe that's a that's an argument worth taking into consideration. But people will figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I could answer this question for you: why the big guys are responding? They don't want it's market competition. Share. It's market share. That's right. So if you yeah. talk about they already so like if already at their doorsteps talk about especially like let's talk about the big producers here right at their doorsteps is is the craft movement the same thing that happened to beer 10 years ago that beer became i mean beer is regional now beer is a regional business in terms of what people are drinking on the ground floor of their metropolitan areas you go to san diego people are drinking only san diego beer southern california only drinking Southern California beer, Northern California, Oregon, Washington, down the line. So that's already happened. Right. So then this this is done. So at the doorstep of the distillers are the is the craft movement. Yeah. So they've already had this 750 ml. They're already taking on that market share fight from home. They're not going to then let the 700 ml be a part of the pie that they're already competing against coming in. Right. And so it's 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 an easy fight because it's easier for them to just put stuff in 700 mls and go over there. That's fine. But having the return of all of this, you know, new stuff, new stuff. Yeah, they'll fight that to the end. Yeah, right. of course. But you know, that uh, in researching this story, what what I learned was that um, uh, the reason that we see a lot of, a lot of larger format international spirits in one liters is because that's typical in international markets. You get the 700 and you get the one liter. So while a lot of people might not want one liters of any juice at home specifically, yeah, that's kind of what we're left with in the US market. Yeah. All right, guys, well, we're over an hour. Antoine, I wanna thank you for being the very first guest. Oh, wow, that's, that's awesome. a good Thanks, guys. podcast. Number so one. Like, um, that's, yeah, I couldn't think of anybody better. So thank you. Uh, you guys Sorry, everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> you guys go out, drink Clamont and Rum JM and Chairman. And just Bounty. rum in general. Rum in just general. Drink raw rum in general. Yes, yeah. of course, drink all of my rum. But experience, find your path. Put yeah. rum in your mouth. It, it's it's there's delicious rum out there. All right, guys. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, buddy. Uh, today's episode was recorded at Good Bottle. Shop in Sacramento, and uh, uh, the music uh, sign off and sign on music was brought to us by Leon and Chase Moore, and uh, produced terribly by me. Cheers! Cheers, guys.